This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is We Built the Wall, How the U.S. Keeps Out Asylum Seekers from Mexico, Central America, and Beyond, by Eileen Truax, translated by Diane Stockwell. A Mexican-American lawyer exposes corruption in the U.S. asylum procedure and despotism in the Mexican government. From a storefront law office in the U.S. border city of El Paso, Texas, one man set out to tear down the Great Wall of Indifference raised between the U.S. and Mexico. Carlos Specter has filed hundreds of political asylum cases on behalf of human rights defenders, journalists, and political dissidents. Though his legal activism has only inched the process forward, 98% of applicants from Mexico are still denied asylum. His myriad legal cases and the resulting media fallout have increasingly put U.S. immigration policy, the corrupt state of Mexico, and the political basis of immigration, asylum, and deportation decisions on the spot. We Built the Wall is an immersive, engrossing look at the new front in the immigration wars. It follows the gripping stories of people like Sal Reyes, forced to flee his home after a drug cartel murdered several members of his family, and Delmi Calderon, a 42-year-old woman leading an eight-woman hunger strike in an El Paso detention center. Truax tracks the heart-wrenching trials of refugees like Yamil, the husband and father who chose a prison cell over deportation to Mexico, and Rocio Hernandez, a 19-year-old who spent nearly her entire life in Texas and is now forced to live in a city where narco-traffickers operate with absolute impunity. We Built the Wall, How the U.S. Keeps Out Asylum Seekers from Mexico, Central America, and Beyond, by Eileen Truax. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Check your privilege. Invisible knapsacks. Intersectionality. In his new book from Verso, Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump, Assad Hader questions the terms and concepts that underpin much liberal and left conversation about race and racism today. He explores critiques advanced by the black radical tradition to mount a thoroughgoing demolition of what we now refer to as identity politics, something that had a quite different meaning when it was first coined by the black radical feminists of the Combahee River Collective. It's a powerful and provocative book that looks to thinkers and organizers, including Amiri Baraka, Barbara Fields, the Black Panthers, Combahee, and Stuart Hall, to explain how identity politics has become, in Hayter's words, the neutralization of movements against racial oppression and the ideology that emerged to appropriate this emancipatory legacy in service of the advancement of political and economic elites. This is not a book that dismisses racism and sexism. Quite the contrary. Hayter's book shows that we can only confront and defeat oppressions like racism and sexism if we recognize their relationship to the capitalist exploitation of working-class people as a whole. The corollary is also true. Capitalism can never be defeated without recognizing and fighting 
the various oppressions that help sustain it. Real quick, if you like what we do here, help us keep making it happen by making a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. This job is the coolest job, but I can only afford to do it thanks to support from listeners like you. So please take a minute and donate at patreon.com slash the dig. That's patreon.com. We also have a weekly newsletter to send those of you who donate $5 or more, and books for those who donate more than that. Okay, here's Asad Hader, a founding editor of Viewpoint Magazine and the author of Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. Saad Hader, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. In her primary campaign, Hillary Clinton touted intersectionality and privilege specifically to attack a social democratic challenge from her left, from Bernie Sanders. I want to set the table for this broader discussion we're going to be having about your book and about identity politics by asking you, what did that primary tell us about the state and function of what we've come to know as identity politics today? Well, first of all, I think that those uh, the 2016 primaries were actually a pretty pivotal moment in producing a conception of politics around race and class, which are conjoined in the subtitle of my book, Race and Class, not Race or Class or something else along those lines. Uh, it was a turning point in turning those into an opposition. And uh, a lot of that had to do with precisely the appropriation you describe by the Hillary Clinton camp of the languages of civil rights, identity politics, intersectionality, privilege, and all the rest, which were conjoined uh, in, in her campaign to the continuation of a neoliberal and militarist legacy that uh, she had participated in in the Obama administration and had essentially been inherited from a long line uh, of, uh, of U.S. presidents from Ronald Reagan. Something else that I w- want to address up front before we get any deeper is you're you're a Marxist, and this book is a is an argument against what we know as identity politics from the left. But you are by no means no means, and anyone who reads the book, it'll be very clear or listens to the rest of this interview, arguing that racism, homophobia, and other forms of oppression don't matter. Um, Quite to the contrary, you open the book by talking about your own personal experience as someone who was constantly asked, where are you from when you were growing up? Because from the middle of Pennsylvania, where you did grow up, apparently was not the correct answer. Exactly. It was this form of subtle racism that we've since come to call microaggressions. But that all turned into something way different and scarier after the attacks of September 11th, 2001. You write, your identity had become a matter of homeland security. I became politicized through my experience of racism and my growing awareness um, throughout my youth of the fact that uh, major political uh, tendency had existed existed in the United States, which uh, had uh, attacked racism and saw itself as part of a global movement against all forms of oppression. 
and that was the black freedom struggle. And that's why that became so important to me and why it's a guiding influence on my book. Uh, that is actually um, the uh, precisely the way that I discovered Marxism. And that's why I came to consider myself a Marxist, first and foremost, uh, through my reading about the Black Panther Party. Uh, and it continues to fundamentally shape what I consider Marxism to be. I think that there are many critics uh, of my book who haven't read it, who see, um, you know, who see different taglines about it or, you know, read one sentence about it and then, you know, sort of slot me into a particular category that I'm a class first Marxist. I don't know what that means if it's intended, if it's intended to be some kind of modifier of Marxist or just a redundancy or something. Uh, or a Marxist or that, that hasn't read Marx, apparently, <laughs> to my eyes. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I mean, there's there's a lot of that, and um, there is a reason for that, which is that <clears throat> this creature does exist. This creature, which is the the person uh, who claims to be a Marxist and thinks that this means that everything should be understood in ultimately economic terms, or that class struggle is the only kind of uh, social struggle that matters. Well, that's certainly not uh, an accurate description. Of Marx himself, you know, because Marx himself, uh, as a young participant in politics, was essentially, uh, in, in, in his earliest writings, we could call him a radical democrat. He was interested in looking at the persistence of forms of domination that were left over from the old regime and had not been overthrown uh, by the new uh, democratic revolutions. And uh, so he was interested in finding how would it be possible to oppose this kind of uh, oppression by religious authorities, by the aristocracy, by old existing state structures? And he discovered the proletariat as the agent that could potentially uh, uh, enter into an antagonism with those old structures and overcome them. That was a discovery that he made on the basis of opposing all these different forms of domination. And that's what led him to uh, not only a contact with the labor movement, but also a careful study of uh, political economy, the, the, the kind of uh, discourse in his period about how classes had come to arise in this particular way, what that had to do with the process of economic development that was transforming society. Uh, so there was no, in, in Marx's own personal development, there was no starting point which said that class is the most important thing. It was a discovery uh, which was based on, a, on a, a political program against domination. And then later on, as Marx develops uh, in his thinking and is observing global politics, uh, both as a, a kind of political philosopher and as a journalist, he works as a journalist for an extended period. And uh, when he studies the uh, question of English colonialism in Ireland, he comes to the realization, and he writes about this in a letter, that there could be no effective class struggle in England until there had been national independence for the Irish, because the fact of the colonial hierarchy, which held English workers above Irish workers, prevented any possibility of class struggle from taking place. So the anti-colonial struggle then took precedence. Uh, it was primary. And, um, and he, applied a, he applied a similar critique um, to xenophobia, anti-Irish immigrant sentiment with, within England, saying that that fomenting such sentiment was, I believe he phrased it, the secret to the ruling class's ability to maintain order or something like that. 
Exactly. And he compared English workers to the poor whites of the United States. That's something he says in that letter. Uh, and so somebody who actually studies Marx's own political and theoretical work will understand this. Unfortunately, um, we get Marxism packaged into these Eurocentric slogans today. And that really does a disservice not only to Marx's own work, but also to the all of the movements that were in the global south, what we now call the global south, but was once called the colonial world and was after that called the third world. All of these movements against colonialism that took up, adapted and used Marxism as a theoretical tool in their struggle against Western domination. And the fact that that also I mean, that that, that uh, adaptation of Marxism by people in Asia, Africa, and Latin America is why Marxism is such a significant political force, is why it is, is a central political force in history. And if you write that out of its history, uh, you're really missing out on what it means. I think one key way that the argument often gets confused on as Trump would say, on many sides, on all sides, is that um, is that it gets reduced or disfigured into this question of whether class matters worse than race, more than race, or mm-hmm. whether class oppression is like more immoral than racial mm-hmm. oppression mm-hmm. or whatever. When when really it's not about that. It's a matter of correctly analyzing the role that racism plays under capitalism, what scholars like Cedric Robinson call racial capitalism. One thing that we can't do is decide in the abstract which of any social relations is more determinant in any particular social phenomenon. So you Mm -hmm. can't say like, okay, when when it comes to slavery, was uh, race more important or was class more important or economics more important? I mean, it's a nonsense question because you had an actual historical phenomenon which was constituted by many different kinds of relations. And we generate abstractions for the purposes of analysis. So we can speak about the racial aspect of it so so that we can understand that aspect better. We can speak about the economic aspect to understand that aspect better. And we can also look at a history in which it's not just like all of these things are piled up or just stacked together alongside each other, but they're articulated in various ways uh, some come, you know, some have uh, primacy in particular moments. Some come in a particular kind of sequence. Uh, but we can't decide in the abstract and just say race, class, which one's more important. Um, and you you quote on a, a great um, and classic Barbara Fields line, who I did a, a lengthy interview with her and uh, her sister Karen Fields a while back on just this subject and other matters. And she wrote, "As though the chief business of slavery were the production of white supremacy." rather than the production of cotton, sugar, rice, and tobacco, which I think really kind of clarifies the historical question. It's not in any way diminishing the horror of racism to note that it was constituted in the United States to legitimate a form of just absolutely brutal and near-total economic subjugation and exploitation. Yeah, in fact, you know, in... Her book, Lose Your Mother, Saidia Hartman argues this in some ways makes it even more horrifying that it was, you know, while uh, the Holocaust was um, directly, uh, uh, while in the Holocaust extermination was directly the goal, 
uh, in slavery, this kind of brutality was the result of the profit motive. It came out of the profit motive. And in some ways, that's, you know, uh, makes it seem even more horrifying that it wasn't even the primary intention. And I don't want to get into a contest about which was worse, which would be obscene. But uh, the, the point is that by pointing to the economic motive, you are not in any way minimizing uh, the, the, the the violence uh, and the uh, obscenity of, of these of, of these historical episodes. And um, one of the important things that that Barbara Fields line uh, shows us is that white supremacy is contingent. White supremacy is not something that is in the genes of white people. Uh, I mean, we we cannot allow that kind of racialist thinking uh, to to invade the way that we think about this history. White supremacy was something that was historically produced in co contingent circumstances, just just uh, in the sense that you know, um, <laughs> tobacco is. I mean, it's not as though we had some kind of um, uh, historical telos to discover the great drug tobacco. And so uh, uh, the plantation system was erected so that we could realize this innate purpose of finally being able to smoke. No, I mean, it was a plant is discovered. People find out that it has this desirable psychoactive effect and they, and they produce particular kinds of social relations and arrangements so that they can grow it. Uh, and uh, that's a contingent fact in history, and so is the production of white supremacy. And some specific background here uh, that we can't get into too much detail on, but that there were before, prior to the institution of, of racialized slavery in the the colonies, there was um, there there was work between organizing, I guess you would call it, between poor whites and and blacks, and that took off in the form of Bacon's Rebellion, uh, which is not something to like heroize because it was very anti-native, obviously. Absolutely, but, absolutely. Um, but, but this is like shows uh, the colonial powers that be that they need some sort of racialized hierarchy. And another interesting thing that Barbara Fields argues is that the revolution in resulting democracy in America actually intensifies the drive to interpret society through a racial lens because of this intensified contradiction between the egalitarian rhetoric of the revolutionary era and the denial of any meager rights at all to the black minority. Exactly. If you say that all human beings have certain natural rights, but some of them are owned as property, you're going to have to find an ideology which excludes them from the category of human. So that's absolutely right. Just one one last thing on this on this topic that I want to get out of the way that we've touched on a bit is that often the liberal argument that socialists don't care about race or gender as, is a straw man in the case of you know Hillary Clinton for example. But you, as you've mentioned earlier, and you write in the book, there is a current of what can only fairly be called class first politics on the left, and you argue that it plays into identitarians' hands. Um, and in addition to that, the socialist left has a mixed history on the question with, with points high and low. And things did improve, at least initially, with the rise of the Communist Party, where black cadre made the fight against racism central. Explain where the left sometimes falls short today and some of the historical antecedents. In many cases, well, first of all, the, the history of the labor and socialist movement in the United States is the history also of immigration and of immigration from Europe, which is voluntary, but then also uh, the, the forced immigration, the forced migration of uh, 
of uh, African laborers. Um, and that means that socialism always has a complicated relationship with the process, the long process of what Theodore Allen called the invention of the white race. And so when immigrants arrive uh, in the United States, they have to make a choice, which is whether they will join up with the labor movement, with the IWW, with the Socialist Party, etc., or will they uh, opt to um, enjoy the privileges that are extended to people who join the club of whiteness uh, and allow them to uh, have some advantage over uh, people who were formerly enslaved. Now, the Socialist Party and other organizations of that kind were not necessarily racist. I mean, we could certainly imagine that there were racist members and so on, uh, but they often uh, opposed segregation. They were often in favor of uh, equal rights for black people. But what they didn't understand in, in, in most cases was that you couldn't, uh, you couldn't have equality and you couldn't have um, the advancement of the interests of the working class as a whole unless you put anti-racist demands and programs at the center of your work, of your political work. And that's what people in the Communist Party started doing, particular figures like uh, the African Blood Brotherhood, which was absorbed into the Communist Party um, at a certain point. And uh, it was founded in 1919 and in a few years was absorbed into the party. Uh, and a, a figure who I talk about a lot, who has a biography with one of the best titles I know of, Black Bolshevik. Uh, <laughs> his name was uh, Harry Haywood. And you can get the abridged version of his memoirs as a black communist in the freedom struggle in my opinion not as good but it's uh 200 pages rather than 800 pages so i, I mean what he talked about was looking around was trying to recruit his friends and black people he knew to the communist party because he had an understanding of how uh racism was produced through the history of of american capitalism and he understood the necessity of having an anti-capitalist program to overcome racism, but it was hard to convince pe black people of that because they saw an organization that appeared to be primarily white, and they were more drawn to organizations like those of Marcus Garvey, which put um, demands uh, for self-determination front and center. And so that's why Harry Haywood went to Moscow and wrote the famous 1928 uh, Comintern resolution, which said that there's a black nation in the American South, which uh, uh, has the right to take up the demand of self-determination. Lots of people quibble about this, whether it, it's it's really uh, correct to say there was a nation in the Black Belt South. This is not the important thing. The important thing is that this was a strategic move to say there is a nationalist demand, which is mobilizing a lot of people, and Garveyism was a mass movement, and that communists have to uh, engage with that uh, desire. They have to be able to say that the demand for self-determination can be taken up by a multiracial movement, by a movement which is anti-capitalist. We do not need to yield that uh, to uh, movements which are fundamentally based on an essentialist concept of race and which uh, are opposed to solidarity uh, with, with other nationalities and other groups. Coming up to the the present, to to what degree do some leftists, to the to the extent that there are actually existing class first leftists, without naming names, where do they fall short, and what what is the analysis that's put forward? 
first of all, they, they suppress this history. And this history is one of the most precious uh, aspects of the history of Marxism. Which, and, and this history is what made Marxism a global phenomenon in the 20th century. And this, they suppress this history partly because um, they have Eurocentric blinders, partly because of a, um, a, a really kind of inadequate analysis of um, what went wrong with actually existing socialism in the 20th century that is popular in the United States. Anyway, I think what, what, what they do, first of all, is they misrepresent Marxism to a public which otherwise might potentially be receptive to it. Many activists today um, look at uh, Marxism as something which says that um, anti-racist demands are frivolous or should be subordinated to uh, class demands and class-based demands will realize anything that an anti-racist demand would do. Like an anti-racist demand is only just a sort of muddled way of expressing what is actually a class demand. Well, uh, when they do that, when, when, when uh, socialists talk like that, they turn off so many people who might otherwise be receptive to the idea of an anti-capitalist and anti-racist movement and they introduce um, the fuel for this kind of division. And it's sort of and, this um, destructive closed circuit because it seems to me that some, you know, so-called class first leftists, that that the roots of the analysis are such anger at the identitarian argument that their mm-hmm. counter argument becomes simply its inverse. That's right. And actually that's happened on both sides. Um, I mean, the way that... Uh, people who are now advocating identity politics often operate is on, is based on pure negation of what they perceive to be the class first position. And uh, so everybody loses in this situation. Um, Which is precisely and, how Hillary Clinton comes to this argument of uh, would breaking up the banks tomorrow, would that end racism, would that end sexism, would that end homophobia? One, exactly. Somehow the two become, you know, mutually opposed options, mutually exclusive options. And I mean, you know, uh, breaking up the banks is an anti-racist demand. I mean, you look at the way that uh, the the um, that subprime lending played out on race and gender lines, for example. There's a lot. There's a lot of social science empirical literature on this. It. it, it I mean, black women especially were targeted by subprime lenders. Um, so breaking up the banks is an anti-racist and feminist demand. Uh, why is it not possible to say this now? It's not possible. Well, it is possible in your book <clears throat> and, and some other venues. And in and, and one book that I think I think one reason it's become so impossible in so many different contexts is because of this really confusing and confused history that has produced the term identity politics as we've come mm-hmm. to know it. And I, I'd like to ask you about this. I had um, Kianga Yamada-Taylor mm-hmm. on to talk about her book on the Combahee River Collective and it turns out, and I didn't know this before reading her book, that the term identity politics was coined by socialist black lesbian radicals mm-hmm. who meant something quite different and even diametrically opposed to the term's mm-hmm. colloquial usage today. For for those who haven't listened to the Kianga interview yet, I recommend that you do. But uh, what happened to the term? Yeah, and I also recommend picking up uh, the book that Kianga edited which contains the Combahee River Collective's a 1977 statement in which they introduced the term and also some really illuminating interviews with the founding yeah. members and authors 
of that collective statement. And basically um, what they mean when they say identity politics is that, look, uh, the existing um, social movements that we've participated in have all relied on a, in a uh, some uh, on, a, on an assumed kind of identity, and so in the Black Liberation Movement, it was assumed uh, that Black people are men. Uh, in the feminist movement, it was it was assumed that w- that women are white. And then in the labor and socialist movements, there was an assumption that workers are white men. And so their uh, point was to say, and in sort of this lesbian separatist moment on the feminist left, there was a kind of presumption that that women aren't connected and embedded within networks that include men. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that is another thing that they opposed. And they were trying to, to point out that uh, when the, the identity of black women was brought into politics and when you asserted, uh, when they asserted their autonomy and they asserted their right to organize autonomously, that that disrupted these fixed and reductive identities that had existed in these movements that they had been working in before. Um, and it was on that basis that then it became possible to enter into coalitions, which didn't just uh, marginalize them. Uh, it was possible to enter into coalitions with other movements of various kinds um, and still retain their autonomy and and uh, be able to exercise leadership and control over their own lives and their own political activities. And that's what they meant by identity politics. And they meant also that because of the way that uh, the different relations of oppression along racial, uh, sexual, and economic lines, the way that they have um, uh, been intermingled in society and in American history, that, uh, the, the, that black women were situated exactly at that intersection. And by responding to the various forms of of oppression that they experienced, they could restructure the whole of society. That would be the trajectory of the the revolution that came out of uh, working for the interests of black women. Because if black women were freed, everyone would have to be freed. And you've just quoted that pivotal line in the the collective statement. Yes, that's that's exactly where their politics were moving towards. So this is a politics of coalition. It's a politics of general emancipation. And they use this term identity politics to try to point to it. And they're really the first people to use it in this sense. I mean, if you search for it in the published record before that, it occurs extremely rarely and only in a very casual sense. But here's the thing. That definition of identity politics does not seem to be what people mean today when they use the word. And that is a complicated thing. That's a real puzzle. What happened in between? Well, you know, in my book, I don't really trace that history. What what happened in the 80s and 90s, specifically how that term was transmitted. And, and you know, maybe one day in the future, I will explain what I think about that. Hint, it's a little hint there. But um, <laughs> uh, it's not in the book because what I wanted to show in the book is that this term that people may find attractive today has an actual revolutionary history, a revolutionary kind of origin point, and that the contemporary usage um, goes against so much of what those people, uh, who what those activists and militants who, were, who had formulated the term wanted to achieve. And uh, now we have a situation in which it seems like 
everybody who uses the term identity politics means something different by it. And often they mean different things by it in, in just one same conversation. One person may have three different definitions of it operating at the same time. Uh, and so there's no way that we can come up with a kind of fixed definition. My move was to say, look, it has this uh, re it has this revolutionary history, and now it has this completely reactionary usage. So we have to understand the instability of the term, and we have to try to figure out how to articulate a different kind of politics from the one that's dominant now. You don't do a, a genealogy of of how it went so the term went so far off the rails yet, um, but you do talk quite a bit about why it's so appealing today. This formulation of identity politics. You write, when there is no other practical organizational effort to combat racism, any questioning of the framework of identity seems like an attempt to deny the validity of the anti-racist struggle. In fact, it goes even deeper than this. Questioning racial ideology itself seems to be a denial of the agency of the oppressed. And elsewhere, you argue in a, in a related fashion that neoliberalism's greatest achievement is convincing us that there is no alternative. As a result, people drift away from, quote, a project of universal emancipation. In this flat, hopeless reality, some choose the constellations of fundamentalism, but others choose the constellations of identity. That's a quite powerful and also provocative statement. Explain the parallel you're drawing between ISIS Jerry Falwell Jr. <laughs> on the one hand and people fixating on Bernie bros on the other. Okay, you, you may need to remind me of it because you've brought up also uh, another important point that I want to emphasize. And it goes back to um, uh, something we were previously discussing, which is that my book does not set up an opposition between race and class, as we've already discussed. But what it does set up is an opposition between mass movements and elite politics, okay? That is the central contradiction and antagonism in my book. Uh, and that's how I read the history that takes us from the 1960s and 70s to the present. So what I see, and this is answering your question now about how we, how we got here, is what I see is that, you know, the Comedy River Collective is making this proposal at a point at which mass movements are starting to seriously decline and the right is starting to seriously ascend, okay? And this is the period of neoliberal restructuring in Europe and the United States. And it's the period of a new um, right-wing ruling class strategy, which Stuart Hall called authoritarian populism. So it's at this moment that the term emerges and then enters into a totally new political context from the one that the people who proposed the term had been working within when they were part of those mass movements, okay? And so within mass movements, when a language of race or any uh, other um, kind of relation that is subsumed under the category of identity, when that is put forward, it's part of a general program for structural social transformation, and it is constantly subjected to the um, to to the sort of practical criticism of mass movements. Okay, when 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 leaders in a mass movement put ideas forward, or they or they make proposals of concepts or slogans, etc., 
they are subject to the criticism of thousands of people who are listening to them and who have actually done the work to get them there, right? So that's a very particular kind of context. When these mass organizations encounter their own internal obstacles, when they're repressed by the state, uh, when they uh, start to fragment just because the conditions of people's lives are falling apart, at that point, this kind of language of race becomes disembedded from the mass movements that, that, that made that language revolutionary. And it gets taken up by leaders who are no longer subjected to the supervision of the grassroots, but are now able to enter in to the existing uh, power structure of the society. Okay, and uh, that's the history in which this kind of uh, th th this kind of drastic change and reversal of of, the, of a term like identity politics can happen. Yeah, and I, I want to quote from you more on, on this question of the the political felicity of identity politics at this moment of left decline and defeat. Well, not necessarily right now. I'm pretty excited about aspects of the left, but historically speaking, you write, with the possibility of integrating social equality into the American culture destroyed by both political repression and industrial decline, politics is reduced to the anxious performances of authenticity. If the personal is the political, it is in the sense that we are left with no practices of po practice of politics outside of the fashioning of our own personal identities and surveillance of the identities of others. This reminds me a lot of, of the whole Rachel Dolezal question, which I discussed a little bit with the Field Sisters. And indeed, you wrote the clearest and best sentences on Dolezal that I've ever encountered. You write, Strange as it may seem, Rachel Dolezal could actually be the typical case. She exemplifies the consequences of reducing politics to identity performances, in which positioning oneself as marginal is the recognized procedure of becoming political. And you continue, passing in this sense is a universal condition. We are all Rachel Dolezal. The infinite regress of checking your privilege will eventually unmask everyone as inauthentic. No wonder then that we are so deeply disturbed by passing. It reveals too much to us about identity. It is the dirty secret of the equation of identity with politics. Yeah, so I've been warned that that's the part of the book that's going to get me in the most trouble. That's why I read it. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so there's a lot there. I mean, one one point to bridge between uh, what I was previously talking about and your question now is that when uh, th these kinds of politics around race, and I, I keep um, sort of hedging here because I don't really accept that we can have a category which is just identity as such and that it subsumes both race and gender and maybe class into it. I think these are all different kinds of social relations and identity uh, is not an adequate way of describing them in their specificity. And so that's why you get when, when people talk in identitarian terms, you always get a laundry list of the different things. And um, that doesn't mean that you're being intersectional. Kimberly Crenshaw you know, in, in, in her one of her uh, sort of um, foundational articles on the question said, intersectionality is not about proposing a new theory of identity. She says it very explicitly. So um, 
the the reason that when these um, different kinds of uh, political categories lose their anchoring in social movements, the reason they become uh, uh, so useful for elites is that they reduce politics to the redress of an injury. So when you have been when you can claim to have been injured in some way uh, by on the basis of your identity you can then make an appeal to the state for protection. And so it's the status of victimhood and the promise of protection that gets attached to the category of identity. And that's the basic way that liberal politics works. And I, you know, I rely on the insights of Judith Butler and Wendy Brown for this. Um, and it means that uh, not only do people get more and more reduced to whatever identity category has constituted them as political because they were injured on the basis of having that identity. It also takes away their agency as political actors because they become victims who need to be protected by the state. Okay. So the, the attachment to um, that identity is part of what you could call this authenticity or this performance of becoming marginal or something of that kind. When you become political only through experiencing an injury and then receiving protection on that basis from the state, then you have to construct an identity for yourself that makes you injured. Okay. And Rachel Dolezal was in some ways the most farcical and extreme example of doing that. Um, precisely because passing is, is uh, such an important term in American history. And I mean, there have been very interesting histories written about exactly how many people passed. Uh, I'm talking about black people passing as white. Um, uh, and uh, there was a, a novel um, in 1929 by Nella Larson called Passing, one of many novels about that phenomenon. And the fact that Rachel Dolezal did it in the reverse uh, is just completely bewildering. And she, her case is a kind of... But quite revealing. Not of Quite revealing. Not so much of her, her. She It turns out she has a pretty interesting and troubling biography that helps explain yes. why she would make seemingly pretty odd choices. But revealing yeah. about, about this moment we're living in, especially in sort of liberal milieus. Yeah, and I think the thing is that the contemporary language of identity made it very hard for people to explain why they had such a strong affective reaction to Rachel Dolezal. There was this utter disgust with her, um, but um, a lot of difficulty explaining precisely why when, you know, we, at, at this, because at the same time we talk about the fungibility of identity and things like that, um, on what basis are we saying that this was wrong? I think one could make an argument, but the, the problem is that our existing political language doesn't make that possible. And I think it was specifically the failure of identitarian language there that le left identitarian liberals with only outrage at as a response to conservatives who tried to use the Dolezal episode to basically attack trans people and say— right. Oh well, if this is a problem. Then why can people uh, be trans? Obviously, that's outrageous that they're you know exploiting this internet controversy to attack trans people. But I think people a lot of because of the identitarian framework, people were ill-equipped to respond to the right, the homophobic right on that. 
it should not be so hard for us to respond to the extreme right. And that's, that's a peculiar phenomenon today. We, we, we should be able to engage in outright and brutal condemnations of the extreme right. Uh, but instead, um, I think one of the aspects uh, of the identity discourse is that you really need the extreme right to come in and say uh, awful things so that uh, you can take up a position of disgust uh, or that then you can compare whoever your current opponent on the left may be uh, to the right and, uh, and, and insist that that disgust be extended to them. We should be clearer about our lines of antagonism and we should have collective struggles against the extreme right um, that uh, I don't see happening right now. We were just discussing the individualist notion of injury embedded within identitarian frameworks. And I think the corollary to that is there's an individualist notion in terms of perpetrators of racism as well, rather than structural issues, even though people talk about structural racism, it often comes down to like bad ideas in people's heads, which to me transposes this racism that's rooted in political economy contingently into the brains or even genes of people with bad ideas. And often, ironically, it's on its more affluent liberals transposing racism, blaming for racism, poor white people who, you know, might use the N-word or something, rather than a political economic system that systematically segregates and exploits black people. And and this is a constant thing I talk about on the show, that 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 blaming of of kind of the the stereotypical redneck, the white trash, is itself racist because it's about cleansing the white mm-hmm. elite, the white elite's whiteness of this white trash of the bad yeah. whites. First of all, affluent whites are extremely racist. And, you know, there are particular bubbles uh, in, you know, the Northeast and the West Coast uh, that uh, contain upper middle class and sometimes lower wealthy elite white people who uh, are part of like a, um, uh, a kind of progressive culture. You know, there was uh, this was sort of summed up in the very interesting response to the book "What's the Matter with Kansas?" Uh, What's the matter with Connecticut? You know, because <laughs> actually, the thing is, rich people are extremely right wing and racist, and it, it's just the the actual weird phenomenon is that there are some wealthy states where rich people lean towards liberalism. Uh, like Connecticut and others. But in most of the country, that's not the case. In most of the country, you know, the lower your income, even among white people, the more likely you are to vote for the Democrats. And so, I mean, there are a lot of complete misconceptions about um, the way that, uh, about the politics of different demographics in the United States that underlie those kinds of prejudices about white trash. Just look at Westchester County's long-running, absolutely tenacious fight against housing integration, Mm -hmm, which -hmm. would require placing low income and thus disproportionately people of color in their communities. This is a a cause for war for Westchester County, New York. Yeah. And you saw that this also in terms of the way that Trump voters are talked about. There's just this assumption that every white person in the Midwest and the South 
voted for Trump. It's not true. There's, there, I mean, we have a huge portion of the population, first of all, in the United States does not vote, okay, from the start. There are plenty of white people, the majority of white people in this country did not vote for Trump. It just means that that's just what the numbers mean. Uh, but even, I mean, the, the way that this group is discussed, it's like um, they are so morally responsible for something bad that happened that um, all we can do is morally condemn them. Uh, anyone who suggests, like Bernie Sanders or whatever, that we should go out and speak to them and speak to their actual existing concerns is uh, apologizing for and rationalizing their racism. Well, this is, uh, I mean... Which is a classic conservative argument when it comes to other issues, when we on the anti-imperialist left, the anti-war left, say, hey, maybe the U.S. history of imperialism in the Middle East might have something to do with why two mm-hmm. planes got flown in <laughs> to the Twin Towers and into the Pentagon. Um, the the standard conservative response is that you're excusing terrorism. Right. And But of course, saying this thing about Trump voters is, you know, it's going to get you a lot of likes and RTs. And uh, it's going to be very popular <laughs> when you say it on MSNBC. But the thing is, when you actually follow through on that to think about what are the political consequences and what's the actual political program that follows, it exposes a very serious error in thinking, which is uh, unless you plan to physically eradicate that part of the population, okay, which is, which I mean, not only would that be uh, like a morally bad Or thing, deprive them of their franchise somehow. Exactly. somehow. Yeah, so we're, I mean, th- those are pretty, um, th- they're, they're outside the pale. I mean, those are like fascist behaviors. So unless you're proposing those, you have to think about if you're, if you're actually interested in opposing racism, if you're interested in fighting against Trump, if you're interested in seeing real social change, that means you do have to change those people's minds and you have to change the way that they live and practice and the way that they relate to each other and to people who they think may not be like them. And that means advancing uh, a message which is not just pandering to their economic interests, but is also educating them on the role that racism has played in this country and the need for them to take up the struggle against white chauvinism and racism as their own struggle as well. And, and, and the need for them to uh, form solidarities with people of color and accept the leadership of people of color in, in uh, movements that are about uh, defending immigrants, in movements that are fighting against police violence, and, and in movements that are, are about um, uh, unionizing workplaces that don't have, have that kind of protection. All of these things have to be done, and, and the, the people in the Midwest, in the South, uh, they have to be reached with that message. There's no other way. And you get a lot of people, again, this is like a typical online thing, saying, well, it's not my job to educate you about white supremacy. Well, uh, if you're an activist, that is your job. pretty much your job, yeah, because pretty much— um, that's, that's like precisely your education. job description. Yeah. Political education is exactly what you need to be doing if you want to have social change. And this is what, you know, you can go on YouTube and look at an amazing uh, little kind of exchange Fred Hampton has about political education 
It was a fundamental term for the Black Panthers. They thought that the Breakfast for Children program was first and foremost a political education program. Political education is fundamental. Let's talk a little about one key term in the individualist lexicon, which is white privilege. It's it's used all the time. And I think in my case, it was Tim Wise, God help me, who first introduced me to it long ago in my innocent, naive youth. What is this invisible knapsack of privilege that an in, a white individual or an individual with XYZ characteristics carries around with them, according to this notion of white privilege? And how does that notion differ from what people like W.E.B. Du Bois have argued in terms of the wages of whiteness? How do these two, these seem like the two extremely distinct ways to, to try to get at something similar? Using the metaphor of a knapsack, it's to me a very misleading or confusing way to talk about what white privilege is, because white privilege, just like just the way that we talk about race, if you want to talk about race as like an aspect of people's bodies or something like that, you're just going totally down the wrong track. You have to talk about race as relations between people who get categorized in a particular way because of a particular historical process. It's not just something that's in people. Uh, and I mean, we, that, I mean, that's false on the scientific level and it's false on the historical level. So talking about white privilege as though it's, um, it's like, I mean, they talk about a knapsack. I think about it like some kind of weird video game that you have an inventory of different tools that you use, the white person. <laughs> and you go around, you, you encounter some difficult situation. You think, oh, yeah, well, here's this tool that I'll use, like this, like magic amulet I'll use for, you know, to, to, to get it to get into college. <laughs> so um, that's uh, misleading because when we talk about the the emergence of privileges for white people. We are talking specifically about the way that um, populations that are not initially included in the category of the white race, like the Irish and all the other immigrant populations from Europe, which were part of racial hierarchies in Europe when they come to the United States, how do they get invited to join the club of whiteness? And this is the language of Noel Ignatia from his uh, How the Irish Became White. And the extension of particular privileges to white people, uh, to, to, to people who opt to join the club of whiteness, that's the mechanism by which they are um, uh, taken away from a situation in which they might recognize their solidarity with black workers and other workers of color. Uh, and that's fundamentally what white privilege does. And Noel Ignatiev, along with Theodore Allen, uh, they sort of uh, advanced the concept first in the uh, 1960s, and uh, they called it white skin privilege. But the point of their argument was to say white skin privileges, white skin privilege is bad for white people. Obviously, yes, it's good for them in the short term that they uh, have access to partic particular things, they are safe in certain places and so on, but it's a poison bait because they are still subjected to exploitation, poverty, deprivation, and so on. And the fact of racial division is what is preventing them from joining with the people who are more exploited and more uh, oppressed than them, but 
who need to band together in order to attack their common enemy, which is the bosses. And, um, you know, that's just like not something that's even considered today when you talk about white privilege, that white privilege might actually ultimately be a bad thing for white people. Uh, and I, this was a core argument even before that for Du Bois, right? I mean, the wages of whiteness are not to highlight how awesome being white is. It's to highlight the fact that the wages of whiteness are these, you know, these various symbolic or maybe, you know, meagerly economic uh, advantages accorded to white people, just as you just said, precisely to create a division within the working class that maintains the overall status quo. This isn't the insight of Du Bois, uh, more, I, th- I believe, like more than 100 years ago? Uh, it was in 1935. Okay, so not quite. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah. here's the quote. Um, the theory of race was supplemented by a carefully planned and slowly evolved method, which drove such a wedge between the white and black workers that there probably are not today in the world two groups of workers with practically identical interests, who hate and fear each other so deeply and persistently and who are kept so far apart that neither sees anything of common interest. So that's his elaboration on the psychological wage of whiteness. I also wanted to quote from, um, you mentioned Ignatiev, who I believe went under the pen name Ignatin as well, Noel Ignatin. Yes. Um, And on this subject, because there's this very pernicious idea that we've been discussing, which, and it's so taken for granted, that white people, that most white people benefit from white supremacy. This is like an uncontroversial, like idea on you know the from the center to the to much of the left. And Ignatine, when he was a member of the Chicago Revolutionary League, wrote this essay entitled "Without a Science of Navigation, We Cannot Sail in Stormy Seas." And you quote from it: "White supremacy is the real secret of the rule of the bourgeoisie and the hidden cause behind the failure of the labor movement in this country." White skin privileges serve only the bourgeoisie, and precisely for that reason, they will not let us escape them, but instead pursue us with them through every hour of our life, no matter where we go. They are poison bait. To suggest that the acceptance of white skin privilege is in the interests of white workers is equivalent to suggesting that swallowing the worm with the hook in it is in the interests of the fish. To argue that repudiating these privileges is a sacrifice is to argue that the fish is making a sacrifice when it leaps from the water, flips its tail, shakes its head furiously in every direction, and throws the barbed offering. I I love that passage, even though I had trouble reading it coherently, (laughs) because not only is it just false that most white people benefit from white supremacy, but the, the practical upshot of that incorrect analysis is incredibly dangerous because if you tell most white Americans that white supremacy is in their interests, their response will be to vehemently defend it. That it's precisely what the white supremacist right says to white people is that it's in your interests. And so telling white people that white supremacy is in their interests, except for like the low hanging, um, you know, guilt ridden liberals, (laughs) it's going to have a totally backward effect. Yeah. And also, you know, in the end, it it really doesn't help us explain very much. You know, people will, I'm sure in the comments or on Twitter or whatever, will say that we we're ignoring that white privileges are real and that they uh, they, you know, um, 
people of color don't have access to these privileges, etc. Actually, the explanation for that is racism. The explanation for that is racial oppression. It's it's you don't explain racial oppression by saying that white individuals have these knapsacks in which they've got these little privileges in them. Okay, uh, we the, 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 we have to come back to the straightforward explanation that there that this is a society which is structured by racial oppression, and has been for its entire history, and that white privilege is a way of recruiting um, the the uh, a portion of the exploited and oppressed population uh, into facilitating the super exploitation of another portion. That's what white privilege is, and uh, it's real, and it's not in the interests of the people who experience it, because then they are unable to see or to join in a movement which can actually overcome the forms of oppression and exploitation that they are also subject to. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Old God's New Enigmas, Marx's Lost Theory by Mike Davis. Marx has returned, but which Marx? Recent biographies have proclaimed him to be an emphatically 19th century figure. But in this book, Mike Davis is first directly about Marx and Marxism. A thinker comes to light who speaks to the present as much as the past. In a series of searching, propulsive essays, Davis, the best-selling author of City of Courts, explores Marx's inquiries into two key questions of our time. Who can lead a revolutionary transformation of society? And what is the cause and solution of the planetary environmental crisis? Davis consults a vast archive of labor history to illuminate new aspects of Marx's theoretical texts in political journalism. He offers a lost Marx whose analyses of historical agency, nationalism, and the middle landscape of class struggle are crucial to the renewal of revolutionary thought in the present day. Davis presents a critique of the current fetishism of the Anthropocene, which suppresses the links between the global employment crisis and capitalism's failure to ensure human survival in a more extreme climate. Old God's New Enigmas also looks backwards to the great forgotten debates on alternative socialist urbanism between 1880 and 1934 to find the conceptual keys to a universal high quality of life in a sustainable environment. Old God's New Enigmas, Marx's Lost Theory by Mike Davis. Out now from Verso Books. A big part of your book that we haven't really gotten into the meat of yet is the fact that this is not a new debate. This is not a new line of criticism that you're advancing. Black radicals have been attacking this form of identity politics for a long time. And this criticism was central to the radical wing of the black freedom movement. You you note that it was precisely what the Black Panther Party was critiquing about the Nation of Islam's cultural nationalism, which they dubbed pork chop nationalism. You also quote from Malcolm X, who moved from separatism toward revolutionary solidarity over time, as saying this, it's impossible for a white person to believe in capitalism and not in racism. You can't have capitalism without racism. And if you find one, 
and you happen to get that person into conversation and they have a philosophy that makes you sure they don't have this racism in their outlook, usually they're socialists or their politics philosophy is socialism. Explain this critique that you're drawing on really heavily in this book of cultural nationalism from the black revolutionary socialist left. Yeah, so, I mean, one early moment of this is precisely the response of um, African-American communists like Cyril Briggs and Harry Haywood to Marcus Garvey. And, um, you know, Marcus Garvey had the Back to Africa movement, but what Haywood pointed out uh, was that um, the homeland of black people was not Africa, of, of black Americans was not Africa. It was the U.S. South where they had been for uh, centuries and had established uh, a culture and uh, a society. And um, so that kind of idea that there was some kind of mythical origin at which the essence of the race could be rediscovered or or found once again, uh, that was uh, very severely criticized um, by black communists. Um, And as I said before, the response was to say that actually the demand for self-determination, we can't let the nationalists um, uh, monopolize that. We have to take it up as a multinational communist party. Um, And then, of course, you know, uh, the Nation of Islam is another mass movement and Malcolm X's evolution is very complicated because even in the period when he's still, he's still advocating for, he's still a separatist, basically, he's taking his lead from the global revolutionary situation. He's pointing to China and Vietnam, and even the he even refers to the Russian Revolution as an example of the kind of program that he wants for Black people in the United States. Um, and of course, you know, the Black Panther Party had a very um, uh, a very hostile relationship to cultural nationalists, and in their case, it was primarily uh, with uh, Ron Karenga's US organization. And you can read, you know, a lot of people's accounts of this. For example, I was looking recently at the account of Elaine Brown in her memoirs. Uh, she was a major leadership figure in the Black Panthers. And she said she talked about going to one of the meetings of the US organization and the women had to eat in a separate room. And they were like, no, we're not, not going to do that. It's like there was some idea that that corresponded to African culture and that's how they had to behave. Uh, of course, it, it, it was it was uh, I, I um, have a chapter in the book about Amiri Baraka, who was very inspired at first by Ron Karenga and was a cultural nationalist for a period until he finally rejected that for Marxism. Uh, and he rejected it for Marxism when he realized that the first black mayor of Newark, Kenneth Gibson, who had been put in his position in no small part by the black nationalist organizations of Newark, uh, when he realized that Gibson was just joining in with uh, the existing status quo of municipal politics and uh, that it was necessary to attack the whole system. At that point, he became a Marxist. But uh, he pointed out, like, look, uh, this is this this is an invention. It's cobbling together hippie culture with, with Islam, with, you know, a kind of um, uh, racist mythology about what Africa is. This is what he. This was his reflection when he was in his Marxist period, back on 
what kind of culture uh, these cultural nationalists were advocating. And it turned, you know, it was something that was fundamentally uh, not only sexist and um, uh, oppressive internally in its own various ways, it also didn't have an effective politics. It was uh, based on a mythology. It wasn't responding to the American power structure. It was mainly about building a kind of counterculture. You brought me to the next thing I wanted to talk about in terms of Baraka's disaffection with uh, Newark Mayor Gibson, which is part of this this broader push in the 70s to win black power in City Hall, um, in City Halls all over the country. And you write, desegregation made it possible for black businessmen and politicians to enter into the American power structure on a scale that had not been possible before. And these elites were able to use racial solidarity as a means of covering up their class positions. If they claimed to represent a unitary racial community with a unified interest, they could suppress the demands of black working people whose interests were, in reality, entirely different from theirs. And uh, this argument about the incorporation of the black elite into the into the elite is that it was accomplished in part by by way of identity politics, this notion of black faces in high places, which which Kianga in um, from Black Lives Matter uh, from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, another book, excellent book of hers, calls the most significant transformation in all yeah. of black life over the last 50 years. Explain this significance of the rise of the black elite and the impact that that it's had on the black freedom movement and also the left as a whole. This takes me back very much to what I wanted to say is the real opposition of my book, which is not an opposition between race and class, but an opposition between mass organization and elite politics. And that's fundamentally what this is about. The black freedom movement was targeting the entire social structure and was targeting the uh, entire the whole stratum of politicians and businessmen and entrepreneurs and so on that existed in a society in which black people were excluded from those positions for the most part with, with exceptions that proved the rule. Um, But when it became possible to integrate the power structure that fundamentally changed the terms of the politics so that in many cases, um, at, at the level of cities, when uh, the city had to uh, deal with a fiscal crisis and impose austerity on the working population, in, in many cases it was a black mayor who did this in, major, in a majority black city and used the idea of racial unity to say that this was the right policy move. In colonial so, terms, it was a shift from direct rule to indirect rule. That, that's an interesting. That's an interesting reading. I will think about that. And so it meant that then mass movements, if they were to uh, introduce a challenge to what what was going on, they had to use a different language from talking about a white power structure, which uh, was uh, uh, excluding the excluding black people on purely racial terms. Because now you had a power structure which which did have black people in it, and you had an attack on basically the black working population that was uh, advanced in the name of racial unity, and so that was that's kind of a crisis of political language, 
And I think that's also the context for why a term like identity politics uh, gets taken up in such um, uh, contradictory ways. You cite a passage from Nikhil Paul Singh's book, Black as a Country, where he writes that the dominant narrative of the, of the civil rights movement, quote, fails to recognize the historical depth and heterogeneity of black struggles against racism, narrowing the political scope of black agency in reinforcing a formal legalistic view of black equality. To what extent does this reigning view of identity politics that we've been talking about, to what extent does it require, does it rest upon this other thing, which is the sanitization of the history of the black freedom movement, the same thing that, you know, made Dodge Ram think it was a great idea to to put an MLK speech in their Super Bowl ad? That's an interesting question because, you know, the appropriation of Martin Luther King, um, the mainstream appropriation, was introduced by Ronald Reagan. You know, he signed Martin Luther King Day into law. So it's something that actually stretches beyond, um, in, it, well, if we're talking about the civil rights movement, it certainly stretches beyond the kinds of populations who now speak about identity politics. Uh, do, do you think that a lot of people who are now in the discourse of identity politics are specifically citing the civil rights movement? No, I don't think they're specifically citing it, but I think that this extremely narrow linguistic emphasis of many so-called identitarians today requires an ignorance and sanitization of the black freedom movement history. Certainly one of the important things to study and recognize is that the civil rights movement, which made the major achievements that it did and, and um, pulled off these massive mobilizations, um, it was based in a radical tradition and there was never any conception that the politics of race and the politics of class were separate. You know, I mean, uh, Rosa Parks, for example, was radicalized by some communist party, anti-racist campaigns. Um, there was the connection to the socialist party and the labor movement with a Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin. Um, Certainly, Martin Luther King came out of the black church, um, though apparently as a young man in graduate school, he was extremely interested in Marx, uh, according to some biographers. But uh, he also, and I think this is something that is underappreciated, at least I don't see too many people commenting on it, that we, we, we talk a lot about how Malcolm X and the Black Panther Party connected the black freedom struggle in the, in the United States to the global anti-colonial struggle. Um, and we know, for example, that Martin Luther King, uh, in the last year of his life, exactly one year before he was assassinated, gave this speech against the Vietnam War, in which he seems to express a lot of sympathy um, with the, the Vietnamese struggle for self-determination, uh, though he doesn't come out right and say it. Um, but actually, already at the beginning, in you know the early mid '50s, he was connecting the Black freedom struggle in Montgomery to the Indian independence struggle. That's what nonviolence meant. Nonviolence meant a connection to Gandhi and the struggle against colonialism in India. 
And so that kind of internationalism was always a part of the civil rights. And in his commentary on on his time in, in Calcutta, he very much makes it clear that his interest in economic justice is a universal one as well. He's absolutely explicit about the connection with economic justice. If you read, um, uh, yeah, 1964, Why We Can't Wait, uh, you can read that and just see how clearly and, and, you know, that's, that's, that's years before the Vietnam moment. It's, it's before the turn to black power. He didn't need to be pressured from outside by black power to say these things about economic justice. Um, and of course, you know, in 1957, he went to Ghana for the Declaration of Independence and he stopped in London to meet with CLR James. Um, these networks and connections were always there. Uh, they were they were part of the Black Freedom Movement throughout. And um, and, f- and, and for listeners, you know, uh, if you haven't listened to the interview that I did with uh, Tommy Shelby and Brandon Terry on the political philosophy uh-huh. of King, I highly recommend checking that out. Anyway, sorry for the interruption. Yeah. And I, I think another thing that should be understood is that in the late 60s and throughout the 70s, many people who came out of the new left made a turn towards communism uh, and, and Marxism. And they, for, and they formed, uh, they weren't necessarily parties, but organizations with, which they hoped would turn into communist parties. And it didn't go that well. I mean, you know, <laughs> they didn't succeed in that. And, there, and there's a book that I think any American leftist should read, which is uh, Max Elbaum's Revolution in the Air, which talks about this moment of, about the new communist movement. Definitely. And, on and he will be on, he on, will be on soon. <laughs> oh. oh, great. And on Viewpoint, we'll have a review by Paul oh, Saba, who is a, another participant in that movement. What, what, what you have to understand about those movements is that they developed their interest in Marxism uh, because of the Black Panther Party, because of these other organizations that were, uh, you know, revolutionary nationalist organizations that um, saw their own struggle in the United States as part of the global anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist struggle. And that so I, I talked about how on a global scale, Marxism is important. It matters. It's something that we talk about today regardless of our views, because it was taken up in China, Asia, uh, sorry, it was taken up in Asia, Latin America, Africa, and so on. But that also holds true within the United States. Um, it, It was, I mean, Marxism was crushed by McCarthyism and the bureaucratization of the Communist Party, and it um, came back to life within the Black Freedom Movement. And that people people need to understand that. Yeah, that's very important. Um, I I want to ask you about another line of school of criticism of identity politics that, unlike yours, is very stupid and dangerous, which is the one put forward infamously by Mark Lilla and company. Oh. And it's this notion, I think, that. What he's arguing when he's arguing against identity politics, what he's arguing is that any concern really about race and and sexuality and about racism and homophobia and sexism, that really any concern about those has led to some sort of like liberal coalitional unity being undermined 
unity around what, because he's by no means a socialist, God knows, but you make an argument that that's entirely to the contrary. What are these anti-identity liberals exemplified by Lilla arguing? For Lilla, there is a clear thing that he wants to converge around, and that is citizenship. Oh, God. And so, yes. And so, you know, Lilla makes a universalist claim, and he, he wants to defend his universalism against um, against these forms of difference, these, these fixations on difference. I have a slight philological problem with saying that identity politics is fixated on difference because identity is the opposite of difference. But let's leave that to the side. That's a, for the philosophy seminar room. <laughs> um, the His universalism is one which is a, it is a contradictory universalism because it is a universalism which is restricted to the nation state. Okay. So he he has an American universalism, and he believes that citizenship, and you know he's we can criticize him for um, taking up a category which is so contested right now. Yeah, of all things. Uh, I mean, (laughs) of all things, yes. I mean, like it's not like that solves any problems. Of course, he will respond that he thinks that people, you know, current undocumented immigrants should be. should have access to citizenship. Um, but uh, the problem is still there, that this kind of universalist category of citizenship is uh, based on the existence of a nation state, and it's based on the attachment to the identity of this nation state, to American values, to American culture. And he wants everybody to be, to, uh, be welcomed into that. But actually, Lilla still has an identitarian conception. He just has one which uh, he considers to be universalist. But um, like so many universalisms, it's false universalism because it's based on the identity of the American nation state. One thing that I wanted to to talk about that we haven't gotten to yet is Afro-pessimism, which has been discussed on the show a few times, primarily in reference to debates over Ta-Nehisi Coates. But Coates, despite his pessimism, is, I think, an important writer and not really the, the, the clearest or most the most damning <laughs> exemplar of this sort of thinking. So I'd like you to explain Frank Wilderson's argument. You write, the anti-blackness problematic radicalizes and ontologizes a separatist black exceptionalist perspective, rejecting even the minimal gesture towards coalitions implied by the term people of color. Explain Afro-pessimism and how the term anti-blackness has come to be a substitute for the concept of racism and and what the implications of that move are. So um, Frank Wilson bases his understanding of Slavery, first of all, on, on the argument of the sociologist Orlando Patterson, who defines slavery in terms of natal alienation, the, the fact that, you know, you were, that the slave is transferred away from the mother at birth, and social death. And uh, these categories for Patterson are about um, 
defining slavery in a comparative perspective. I mean, from ancient slavery up through modern plantation slavery. So they had no specific attachment to racial slavery because I mean, there's, there's, there are many practices of slavery which were not uh, based on any kind of racial division or racial ideology, uh, but they had other um, ideologies attached to them. But uh, Wilderson um, takes these terms and concepts and uh, attaches them specifically to the African slave trade and understands blackness as the kind of core void of what he calls white civil society. Um, and the, it becomes the kind of axis around which um, the, the entirety of um, the existing society is built on the negation and destruction and annihilation of blackness. And this is not just white. Uh, he, I quote him in the book um, in, this, in this very kind of surprising anti-Palestinian statement. I quote him saying, you know, that um, Arabs and Jews have both equally participated in this kind of anti-blackness. And so, I mean, that, that, kind of argument is based on um, not only a very something which is politically completely contrary to the kinds of solidarities that were central to the black freedom movement uh, but it's also um, uh, a highly metaphysical way of speaking which doesn't allow us to understand the specificity or contradictions and complications of the history of slavery. Um, another aspect of the, uh, another sort of key term in Afro-pessimism that became, that went into wide circulation was uh, black bodies. That's a way of talking, um, which it was, I mean, the, the basis of it just is to say that black people through slavery were excluded from the category of the human and excluded from the category of the subject. Um, and that's uh, a little, it's a little complicated. I mean, because, you know, Saidiya Hartman, who they claim as, who, who Wilderson and other Afro-pessimists claim as a source, even though, as to my knowledge, he has never claimed to be a participant in this tendency. Uh, you know, she points out how there are, there were ways in which, um, uh, slaves were slaves sort of performed a particular kind of subjectivity and so on. It was a contradictory thing. It's not a simple in or out. Uh, anyway, we're getting sort of technical, but I, I mean the, to me, what that kind of language does today is it takes all of the agency away. And when people describe the black lives matter movement in terms of black bodies, they took, a, they, they, they suppressed the fact that, there were all of these people on the streets who had never read Frank Wilderson or even Coates um, who were out there resisting death, who were saying they refused to die, they refused to be killed by the police. And uh, so for me, I mean, this was a, uh, a serious misunderstanding uh, and, and misrepresentation. It did a disservice to the mass movement that was emerging at that point. You quote Robin 
D.G. Kelly um, on this question of, of bodies and violence against black bodies. He writes, in the argot of our day, bodies, vulnerable and threatening bodies, increasingly stand in for actual people with names, experiences, dreams, and desires. And, and to me, this lack of particularity yeah. seems like it also serves to obscure the particular sorts of black people who are mo- most often getting murdered by the police and incarcerated and suffering all sorts of other obscenities. It's obscuring um, the, the struggles and the struggles to survive that people are engaged in every day and the, and the resistance that people engage in every day, even if it's not um, recognized as such. This is something else that Robin D.G. Kelly has written very well about about you know um dragging your feet and taking taking extra time on your breaks at work these are forms of resistance that are always at play and um the this rhetoric this metaphysical rhetoric of victimhood as i was referring to earlier um takes that agency uh, that possibility of resistance because it away. suggests that people don't have brains not intentionally yeah. but i don't know the last thing I want to talk about is that this discussion, this debate that you're writing out is not just academic to invoke an anti-intellectual colloquialism. Um, these politics can concretely be quite destructive in organizing campaigns, in people doing political work. Yeah. You write about your own experience organizing to fight tuition hikes at UC Santa Cruz. Explain what happened. We had uh, the occupation of a building and uh, successfully ejected the administration and uh, had held that building for a couple days. And, you know, the, the trajectory was not clear at that point where things were going to go. But somehow the idea began to circulate that this was a movement of white anarchists or white Marxists and um, that it was not a safe space for people of color. And um, the primary organizers were just completely taken by surprise by this. I I wasn't one of them, by the way. I was a supporter and participant, but it had been mainly undergraduate students who had organized it. And most of them, most of these primary organizers were people of color, and they were just completely taken aback by this. And you know, there were attempts to respond, but there was what what ultimately happened is that a group called itself the People of Color Caucus, and it was a group of some people of color who had showed up, you know, had not been involved in the previous organizing, but had showed up to participate. And um, I went to one of their meetings. White people were not allowed. And uh, they... Uh, they basically planned out a split and they took about half of the remaining people at the occupation with them and sort of um, destroyed the reputation of the occupation. And um, that's pretty much the experience that got me to start writing the materials that led to this book. Wow. Just um, by, by seeing just how destructive it was and how this these particular languages 
circulated um, and were used in such depoliticizing ways. So that's what that's what drove me to write the book. A related thing that this makes me think of is that identity politics also, I think, serves as a framework that allows certain people of of color who are elites, whether domestically or second or third world elites, to ironically kind of launder their own privileges to and establish some false equivalency of their own conditions and situations with black oppressed masses in the United States. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. And it was absolutely true in this situation. And, you know, sometimes I, I just want to scream, like, what do you think you're talking about when you say privilege, when you live in the United States? I mean, like, just, just step outside this country and step outside of Europe for a minute. And you will realize that compared to billions of people in the world, you are outrageously privileged. You know, there's so much more I'd like to talk to you about. And as I mentioned before we started, I'd love to have you back on to do an entire show on Stuart Hall, who you do some really great writing on and who I think I need to do a show on. Um, But before I let you go, I want to ask, in this current moment, what path the left might have to break out of this ideological trap? There are a couple of things. One thing is that um, people who consider themselves socialists should um, stop allowing um, stop allowing there to be a division between uh, problems of race and problems of class. It should stop making it possible for people to represent socialism as a white project. Uh, and the same goes, by the way, for gender. It should not be possible to say that uh, socialism is a male project. It should be fundamentally feminist. And so uh, that means not only um, the issues of representation, who is in the leadership, who publishes in your magazines and so on, but also um, the kinds of demands that you take up, the kinds of communities you decide to work in, the kinds of coalitions you decide to enter into. That is one fundamental thing. Second thing uh, is that um, there should be a uh, a turn away from the endless cycle of debate, denunciation, and so on. Uh, and the, the 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 worst sort of manifestation of this is social media, um, in which people, you know, you 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 get you get the most attention for attacking someone else. And uh, that doesn't help build any kind of movement. Uh, the the usefulness of social media and movement building is severely exaggerated. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, like, so, yes, some people have a lot of influence on social media. That's because they're like the president of the United States and so on. That's why they have influence on social media. Uh, other, if, if you're on social media with, you know, 800 followers and you just said you you and someone else are just attacking each other all day it's not it's not going to go anywhere but but it's not just social media these kinds of things also happen as i described in my own experience in general assemblies and in political meetings and the important thing to recognize is that it's not um the 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 end goal is not to have a, a victorious discussion um and it's not to win in an argument um, the arguments can last for seven hours. 
I have been at seven hour uh, general assemblies. Um, the important thing is to uh, move away from endless conversation towards practical activity and to work on concrete projects. And when you work on concrete projects, you have to find a way to work with other people. You have to find a way to work with people who are different from you and whose views you may not share. And um, this is this is one of the fundamental lessons of uh, the uh, Black Freedom Movement, of the Civil Rights Movement, just in terms of going and making coalitions to actually work on a project. Uh, you need to make a poster. You need to uh, plan a rally. You need to... Um, uh, whatever your project may be, you need to organize people to go canvassing for something. Um, that's the way that people can um, bridge ideological divisions. And it's also the way that um, if you have understood the necessity of this, it's also the way that people can be politically educated. It's the way that white people can learn to question their own assumptions and prejudices. It's the way that men can learn to listen when women speak. Which is something um, we've learned recently have, from the the teacher strikes, and I spoke out with Eric Blanc in terms uh -huh. of people who might have conservative ideas in their heads, their ideas changing through engaging in struggle. Exactly. So, yeah, somebody once asked where correct ideas come from, and the answer is they come from practice. And I'll uh, I'll leave it to the listener to figure out who said that. Well, Assad Hader, thank you so much, and thank you for such an important book. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Assad Hader is a founding editor of Viewpoint Magazine and the author of Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump, out now from Verso. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after writing to Abraham Lincoln that the war against shadow slavery might finally allow the white worker to better recognize his own class exploitation. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, do leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And last but by no means least, find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution. There's a link in the show notes. Thank you.